The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, back by popular demand, we're taking a second look at Steve Silberman's book, Neurotribes, looking again at the history and future of autism. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm joined by Steve Silberman, who has covered science and cultural affairs for Wired and other national magazines for more than 20 years. He's joined us today for part two of a conversation about his new book, Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. Welcome back, Steve. Hey, thank you, Desiree. It's great to be back here. So obviously, I just couldn't leave you alone, sir, because I, I love this book <laughs> and and uh, and your interview. And apparently, so did our listeners, because there was an oh, there was a clamoring, a clamoring, I say, for part two. Oh, good. So, Excellent. Uh, so the last time you were here, I, I think we what we covered mainly was the history of the diagnosis of autism spectrum yeah. disorders. Uh, but there was there was a lot more that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, and one of those things was the rise of parents' organizations and how that was sort of a turning point in how we view autism. So maybe can you walk us through that? Sure. Um, well, the parents' organizations were in reaction to the prevailing belief among clinicians that autism was caused by bad parenting. So that was probably the most damaging aspect of the legacy of Leo Connor, who was the uh, man who took the credit for discovering autism, although as I talk about in my book, I believe the true discoverer of what we now call the autism spectrum was Hans Asperger in Vienna in the uh, mid-1930s. But what happened was that Leo Connor came out with a paper in 1943 describing 11 patients and sort of really setting in stone the clinical picture of autism. You know, it was, for the most part, a very beautiful paper, carefully observed. And as I revealed in Neurotribes, one of the reasons why the quality of the observations was so high was that uh, Connor had, helping him do those observations, George Frankel, who had actually been Hans Asperger's chief diagnostician at the Children's Clinic in Vienna. So, in a sense, Connor had the most qualified possible person doing his uh, clinical observations for him when he saw his first two autistic patients. When Connor first saw a guy named Donald Triplett or Donald T in the famous paper, he didn't really know what to make of him, so he sent him to George Frankel over at the Child Study Home. Connor had rescued George Frankel from the Holocaust, ended up becoming his main collaborator for the next couple of years as he, quote-unquote, discovered autism. Connor's paper very skillfully wove the observations by Frankel uh, at the Child Study Home, which was sort of an annex of Johns Hopkins. And uh, there was also another uh, clinical observer named Eustacia Cameron. Connor came up, came out with this paper. And even though later he would say that it made a big splash, in fact, it was, it was uh, almost entirely ignored. It got noticed by one journal that did a sort of reader's digest of the most important studies that year. You know, not coincidentally, 
the guy who said that Connor's paper was one of the most important papers written that year was the father of a young girl who was in Connor's original paper. Um, that also hasn't been known until now. But that paper came out. It did not make a big splash. It was read by, you know, a few of Connor's peers and whatnot, but it really didn't make a big splash until about three years later, Connor gave a presentation that ended up getting covered by Time magazine in which he blamed autism on cold, unemotional parenting. The phrase that sort of passed into pop culture was refrigerator mothers, but Connor was also very critical of, you know, you could say refrigerator fathers, people who were so involved in their career um, that they didn't really have time to offer love and nurturance for their children. So this um, did two things. Uh, it attracted a tremendous amount of attention to Leo Connor's work. And so suddenly he became sort of, uh, you know, one of the first celebrity uh, psychiatrists in America. And so he was called to comment upon various things. The other thing that it did that was catastrophic for autistic people and their families was that it made the generally accepted treatment protocol for autism institutionalization because that would remove the child from the allegedly toxic psychological environment of the family. These kids basically went into psych wards for adults because there, were, there was no such thing as an autism ward. The children disappeared into the institutions. Meanwhile, the parents were highly stigmatized. I spoke to many older parents who had been told by their uh, psychiatrist or pediatrician to never mention the child's name again, to quietly remove the child's photos from the family albums, and just get on with their lives. And that was allegedly, you know, better for both the parents and the children. Well, of course, it was horrible for everyone. And one of the things that it did was that it made the parents of autistic children incredibly isolated. They were already isolated because autism was mistakenly believed to be so rare. But they couldn't even, you know, talk to anyone else they could have possibly found that had similar challenges with their child or had the grief of having put a child in an institution. Basically, if you were the parent of an autistic child, that was tantamount to confessing that you yourself were, were mentally ill. So uh, it was an incredibly stigmatizing situation. Not only that, but the clinicians did not want the parents doing having anything to do with the children's treatment. I mean, the children, you know, were already put in state hospitals, for one, but also the parents weren't even supposed to be visiting their own children. Like, it was considered bad for the, for the children, for the parents to visit. So the parents had this really uh, incredible load of stigma and grief. And that started to change when parents uh, basically started rebelling against that view. And the first parent to rebel against that view in America was a guy named Bernard Rimland. Um, he was he was sort of universally known in the autism community eventually as Uncle Bernie. Um, he was a big, affectionate, uh, you know, bear of Jewish bear of a guy with a beard eventually. Um, but when he was a young psychologist working for the Navy, um, his specialty was sort of human resources. So he, he didn't uh, know anything about autism. Uh, he and his wife, Gloria, had a child named Mark. And Mark at first seemed to be a kind of a prodigy. Uh, his language came early. 
Um, he seemed to be very, very alert in the nursery. Uh, and they thought, oh, this is great. He's amazing. But Gloria noticed, even before he'd left the maternity hospital, that he cried a lot. And, in fact, he cried constantly. And, uh, you know, once they took him home, they realized that he had a set of challenges that they were not predicting and that were very, very difficult to handle. For instance, if Gloria so much as shampooed her hair, Mark would cry until it looked the way it usually did. Um, and in fact, caring for Mark was so exhausting that uh, Gloria, after really a couple of years, um, asked a neighbor to help her babysit, basically, or to babysit for her while she went out. And so Gloria went out for a little while. And when she came back, both the babysitter and Mark were on the floor crying. So Mark was very difficult to raise. He would also injure himself. He would bang his head against the walls of his crib until he had a bruise. And um, the only thing that seemed to calm him down, it's actually really sweet that the Rimlins like thought of all these ways to calm him down and to sort of adapt his world so that he was more comfortable. For instance, they discovered that if they pushed his stroller back and forth over a broomstick, uh, that it would kind of soothe him. Like there was something about the repetitive motion and slight jostling. Uh, that soothed him. So <clears throat> they had no idea what was going on, and this was particularly difficult for Bernie because he was a psychologist. So uh, he started reading around, and what did he discover? Well, he discovered that he and Gloria were allegedly responsible for, for this condition. Um, in fact, they found the word autism in an old textbook that had been stored in the garage, and it was clear that Mark was autistic, but that came along with this official explanation that parents were to blame. And they knew they, they loved Mark. They were very affectionate. Um, so it was, you know, Bernard thought it was impossible that they had caused it. But this stigma <clears throat> was so pervasive that Gloria, who hardly ever gives interviews, but she gave me an interview and it was really a moving and wonderful experience. But she told me that, um, you know, after years of not going out because they were caring for Mark, uh, they finally went out with another couple and they were having a good time, Gloria thought, when all of a sudden the, the wife and the other couple turned to her and said, you know, you just don't seem like that kind of person. And Gloria said, what kind of person? And she said, you know, the kind of person who would do that to your child. And so, you know, Gloria was heartbroken and they never saw each other again. Uh, and, you know, so that's how pervasive the stigma was. So finally, what happened was Bernie wrote a book. And he did it by uh, a book called Infantile Autism. And he did it by um, entering a contest, believe it or not, because there were, there were no, uh, you know, publishers that were going to publish uh, a book by a non-expert on this, you know, allegedly very, very rare condition. So he submitted, uh, he wrote a manuscript, he became obsessed while he was writing it. He literally lived in libraries, like Gloria told me that one day uh, Bernie came back from, I think it was um, New Orleans, uh, a weekend in New Orleans, and he looked really thin and drawn. And Gloria said, well, did you eat? And he said, no, I had uh, a guard lock me into this medical school library for the weekend, and all they had there was chicken soup that came out of a machine. So, you know, he basically tried to read everything that had been written about autism. And back then, you still could actually have that ambition. 
Now, having tried more recently for my book, I have to say it's a lot harder to try to read everything that had ever been written about autism. But back then, you know, he thought he could, and he actually engaged a team of translators from the Navy to help him um, translate uh, because some of the stuff had been written in German. So anyway, so Bernie wrote this book, submitted it to this uh, very well-esteemed publishing company. They had a, a blind panel of judges uh, choose it without knowing who the author was, so there couldn't be any prejudice in the judging. Bernie won, they published the book, and Bernie thought that it would mostly appeal to clinicians, basically. And so one of the things that he did was he came up with a questionnaire that he put at the back of the book um, that was basically a, a screening questionnaire for autism. And much to Bernie's surprise, and in fact, Gloria told me initial horror, what happened was uh, Bernie had included his address in the questionnaire. And like a week after the book came out, Bernie started getting all these questionnaires that had been torn out of the book uh, by parents who had filled them out. And so immediately Bernie recognized that there was this population of parents who were desperate to find accurate information about autism that didn't blame them. Because what Bernie did was he overturned the then completely mainstream theory that parents were responsible for their children's autism. He just demolished it with information, with data. And um, so parents were so desperate to hear both accurate information about autism and also information about autism that didn't make them the villains in the story because there were already books out that blamed them. So uh, Bernie started getting these questionnaires, and he started to feel like, I've got to do something uh, for these people, because, you know, he was one of them. He and Gloria were, were parents, and there were all these other parents. Apparently, there were parents all over the country that were in the same state of extreme isolation and stigma and, you know, desperate for more information, desperate to talk to other parents. Uh, in fact, Bernie didn't even identify himself as an autism parent uh, in that book. And in fact, he didn't identify Mark uh, in several of the anecdotes in the book, but it, but it was Mark. But anyway, so um, uh, what he did was he ended up getting in touch with another parent named Ruth Christ Sullivan. And Ruth Christ Sullivan uh, had a son named Joe, who was sort of autistic in many classic ways. What was wonderful is that Ruth Chris Sullivan had a background as a community organizer. So, you know, she told me she's very elderly now, but she's still an extremely spunky lady. I think she's in her late 80s by now. She still walks a mile every day. Like, she shamed me, I'll tell you. But um, she, and she's still sharp as a tack. And she told me, the first time I held elected office, I was in seventh grade, she said. And then she became a student nurse in the deep south, like at the most, you know, intensely racist time in American history. And she called for a motion to integrate the Louisiana Nurses Association, which she was able to successfully pass unanimously. And uh, her mother was an early feminist. So that was a role model for her. So basically, Ruth Chris Sullivan didn't take any you-know-what, you know? And so she had already, in a sense, started organizing autism parents because she, uh, when Joe was diagnosed, she took him to see some kind of a specialist, and she ended up being told by the specialist 
that she should be in a like a nervous mother's group or something like that, some condescending right. you know group for these women <laughs> who would allegedly uh, you know turn their kids autistic basically. And so what she did, she she's such a wonderful woman. I'm so glad she's still alive and thriving. But what she did was like you know when they're waiting for this clinician to come in. She passed around a secret note um, uh, to the other women in the room that said basically like, after we get out of here, like, let's, uh, you know, why don't we just meet on our own so we could just talk, you know? So, uh, so she did that. And Bernie turned out to be kind of the perfect ally for her because Bernie had, uh, you know, sort of cred as a, as a psychologist. He'd written this book that was instantly recognized as the best book ever written on the subject to that point in history, actually. In fact, you know, the only right book that had been written on the subject to that point in history, uh, because it didn't blame parents. Um, and, uh, so Bernie and Ruth started conspiring about, okay, why don't we create a community? Uh, because Bernie really wanted to, um, sort of communicate with other parents to find out what was working. Bernie, you know, was, was working for the kids. Um, Bernie also had by that point teamed up with, uh, Ivar Lovas, a uh, psychologist at UCLA. Now, Ivar Lovas invented what's called ABA or applied behavior. Well, he didn't invent ABA. Uh, ABA stands for applied behavior analysis. Um, it's a, it's a behaviorist way of training people to do things. And so what Lovas did was he applied ABA to autism in order to train autistic kids to do the simple tasks of self-care that, you know, were necessary, like learning how to brush your teeth. He would break down the task into these very um, small units, and then he would repeatedly train the child. Now, Lovas, um, he may have had good intentions, but he was not entirely a good guy, I have to say. And in fact, the more that I hear about him over the years, the less I think he was a good guy. But, and, you know, ABA is still the most, uh, widely accepted, uh, intervent, early intervention for autism. It's very, very controversial among autistic self-advocates. We can talk about why later. But basically, what Lovas did was, um, he would either apply a reward if the child did something, you know, that, that Lovas wanted the child to do, like maybe a little M&M or a raisin or something. But Lovas, where Lovas sort of embraced the dark side was that he also used punishment. Right. So he would even slap the children and eventually it escalated to the point where he was building electrified rooms that, you know, these children would be standing in bare feet on electrical grids. And, uh, you know, if the child was told to hug one of the experimenters, if the child did not, you know, quickly, you know, run across the room and hug the experimenter, the child would get shocked uh, through their feet. And these were very painful shocks. So basically, Lovas was treating these children like rats and Skinner boxes, more or less. Um, and... You know, he had a very dehumanized way of of uh, looking at uh, his young patients. In fact, he even said that they weren't human yet. He said that you you had to build a person inside the autistic shell uh, by using this uh, repetitive training. So, <clears throat> but Bernie and Lovas had already teamed up. Um, one of the main things that Bernie was disturbed by 
when Mark was growing up was his self-injurious behavior, um, you know, battering his head against the crib and stuff. And so Lovas said that he could train kids not to do that anymore. Now, it turns out if you go back and look at Lovas's studies, a lot of the behavior that Lovas was trying to, quote unquote, extinguish with punishment, etc. It's obvious that the behaviors were probably caused by the experimental situation, at least in part. So, you know, it's really, Lovas is another one of those black holes in my book that you can endlessly go down, you know, and sort of... It's a very, uh, very depressing hole. I know, it's a very, very depressing hole. The good news is this. So Bernie, um, once he teamed up with Lovas, he thought, okay, ABA, this is good. So I now have something to offer parents. I don't just have this book that tells them that they're not to blame. I don't just have a number that they can call because he would answer the phone all night, basically. If a parent who had read his book, you know, found his number, he would talk to them. He was very good about that. But he said, okay, now I have this useful therapy that I can spread the word about. So uh, on November 4th, 1965, um, Bernie and Ruth Chris Sullivan uh, had the first meeting of the, the first organization for autism parents in America. Now, by this point, Bernie had already been to England, where he talked to Lorna Wing, uh, who was the mother of the autism spectrum. She was the clinical psychiatrist who, uh, as I believe I mentioned in, in the last broadcast, mm -hmm. had uh, rediscovered Asperger's paper, in a sense rediscovered the autism spectrum, and then worked with the editors of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, to broaden the criteria of diagnosis for autism to reflect the spectrum. So anyway, Bernie had already visited Lorna. Lorna had already um, launched the first parenting organization in London, uh, there may have been another parenting organization in the Netherlands, I hear now. But anyway, this idea was an idea whose time has had come. The idea that parents, by teaming up together, could share information, could also just offer each other emotional support. So on November 14th, 1965, in Teaneck, New Jersey, Ruth Chris Sullivan, you know, had driven there for four hours, and they had the first meeting of autism parents in America. And it was a very interesting meeting because um, for all the parents there, it was an incredibly emotional experience they, because it was the first time, really, that they'd been able to talk to other autism parents without this, you know, horrible burden of shame and stigma on them. Uh, it was a four-hour meeting, um, and interesting things happened. Bernie gave a presentation on ABA. He would give that pre presentation many times over the years, but... One of the things that I found for my book that I thought was so fascinating was that there was a pediatrician there named Mary Goodwin who demonstrated what was called, it was commonly called a talking typewriter. It was a, it really a primitive computer called the Edison Responsive Environment Learning System. It was like so ahead of its time. It was unbelievable. There was like a, a, a keyboard. There was a monitor. Uh, the, if there was a kid using it, the kid would get voice prompts. Like it was basically, you know, amazingly a piece of the future that had been sort of beamed back, you know, to 1965. And so Mary uh, had already figured out that this machine was great for autistic kids because it never punished them. It was always encouraging. They loved it. Um, you know, that was like an early sign that autistic people were attracted to technology. Um, and so, uh, 
So Bernie gave his rap on ABA. Mary gave her demonstration of, you know, what eventually we would all be doing and certainly autistic people would be doing online uh, decades later. Um, and so the parents left with a sense of hope. And basically on Bernie's book tour, more or less, he had these meetings of parents and it was a revolution. It was huge because parents would no longer take the blame for causing their kids autism and also they could share information. So when the parents movement started out, it was a wonderful thing. Now, of course, it, I like that's a that's a wonderful segue, sir, because uh, there were there were it was definitely a wonderful situation. The the autistic parents uh, had support and a place to share stories and discuss strategies around raising their kids. Uh, but then there was uh, there were a number of rifts, shall we say? Now, uh, around ABA was definitely one rift, but uh, there were a number of others. Well, you know, more specifically than ABA. One of the first rifts was around punishment because Lovas and Rimland, I have to say, I mean, you know, one of the things about my book is that, you know, sometimes I'll be talking about, about my book to someone and they'll say, well, was so-and-so good or evil? You know, was Asper good or evil? <laughs> right. Or, you know, was, was Connor good or evil or was Rimland good or evil? There's nobody purely good. It's not a binary book. You know, there's, there's nobody good, strictly good or evil, except for perhaps Lorna Wing, I have to say. I never detected any evil in her. Basically, everything that she did was good. And then there are a number of parents who I wrote about who I think are, you know, sort of like super really good people. But in terms of this sort of big name clinician, and whatnot. Almost everybody, uh, you know, did really great things and then pretty bad things. Right. And in the case of Bernie Rimland, uh, the you know the wonderful thing that he did was write this book, kill off that horrible idea that parents were responsible for autism, launch the parents movement with Ruth, Ruth Chris Sullivan. But then you know the problem is that he embraced Lovas's vision of ABA so wholeheartedly that he also embraced Lovas's use of punishment. And when I say punishment, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not using it in the um, usual sense. I'm using it in the technical, behaviorist, psych psychological sense. The electrified floor. Right, sense. exactly. Right. And so what, what Bernie actually tried, in not one of his kindest hours, I have to say, um, Bernie actually tried to popularize the use of industrial cattle prods at home. Like mothers were supposed to zap their kids when they were autistic kids when they misbehaved. Um, and to, you know, to make it sort of more acceptable to parents, Bernie coined the euphemism tingle sticks. Oh, my Lord. And, you know, well, let's put it this way. There were some tough uh, moms in New York. Who, who didn't roll that way, you know, like they were not going to be using any tingle sticks, you know, on their kids. So one of the first rifts in the parenting movement was over the use of what behaviorists call punishment. Um, and, you know, what anybody else would call torture, actually. Um, and so, you know, the parents were in a tough situation because the kids were sometimes injuring themselves so badly that that alone, uh, you know, could be life-threatening even. But they were, they, they just intuitively rejected, um, Bernie's attempt to popularize, uh, punishment. I mean, some parents actually did it, but, you know, there was a lot of pushback against that. And in fact, what, what I think is so interesting is that even ABA, 
um, the assistant that Lovas, sort of the graduate assistant, that Lovas would dispatch to Bernie's meetings of these parenting uh, organizations. Um, his name was David Rybach. I talked to him. He was actually astounded that I was able to track him down. He couldn't believe anyone, like he, nobody had talked about this stuff for decades, you know, but so he gave me this amazing interview. And um, <clears throat> David did not use punishment on the kids. Um, at, at worst, he would slap himself, which would create this sort of startling sound that alone would act as, you know, as, uh, to extinguish the behavior that he was trying to extinguish. But, um, basically he refused to do what Lovas was doing in the lab to the kids. So, you know, Lovas's desire to use these brutal punishments on these kids, it was almost immediately rejected. And then, um, there was an article written in Life magazine about Lovas and, you know, it, it, it portrayed him as a hero. In fact, it called him a poet with a cattle prod. Uh, and uh, there were these very alarming photographs of, you know, not just autistic kids like, uh, you know, looking sad, but also like experimenters screaming at the kids. And, you know, Life magazine thought, oh, this is great. You know, this is like a, a these are guys are pioneers at treating this, you know, horrible, you know, condition. But in fact, parents all over the country read that article and was like, no, this is terrible, you know. So, so they would actually object once Bernie started talking about ABA at the meetings because they, they had read the Life magazine article. So anyway, so one of the first riffs was about uh, punishment, use of punishment. Then, you know, Bernie, uh, another way that I, well, I don't want to frame him negatively up front, but, you know, what he really got into was the idea that he could cure autism. And he had um, a very good reason for believing this. Uh, there's a, a condition called phenylketonuria, which it's it's something that you're born with. It's genetic. Um, and it means that you can't properly digest uh, a certain amino acid. And so it builds up in your bloodstream and it eventually creates intellectual disability. So it's a very, very serious condition. But it turns out that you can, it's not a very complex condition. So it turns out that if you do a special diet, you can actually, the kid can actually grow up and not become intellectually disabled. So now they routinely test kids for PKU, as it's called, um, I believe in the maternity hospital. And so if the kid, you know, has to be on a special diet, um, you already know up front, you know, so you never give that kid the, the, the uh, amino acid that they can't handle. So um, Bernie thought that he would be able to find something similar for autism, like a dietary intervention or a biomedical intervention, uh, vitamins. And um, Bernie was influenced in that regard by Linus Pauling. Do you remember who that was? He was the guy who basically said vitamin C could almost ever anything, right. you know. And he was he was a brilliant guy. I believe he won like several Nobel prizes. Like seriously, like I believe he won the you know the science. Pri I have it in the book, but you know he won a Nobel prize in right. Yeah, Nobel prize in science and also the Peace Prize, I believe for his anti-nuclear activity. So, you know, no question, Linus Pauling was a was a brilliant uh, visionary guy. About the vitamin C, you know, maybe not so much. You know, he wrote bestsellers about it. There was a run on vitamin C tablets. That practically launched what we now call the alternative medical industry, was Linus Pauling's belief in vitamin C. 
because suddenly, you know, people were, they couldn't get vitamin C, you know, at the drugstore. So like whole, a whole health food store industry arose to provide them with, you know, herbal supplements and alternative medicine. And so Bernie really pushed for biomedical interventions for autism. Now, I don't want to say that biomedical interventions are worthless because as many parents have, have discovered, they're not. You know, if, if a kid is gluten intolerant, Um, And they can't say, mommy, I have a tummy ache because they're autistic, so they can't use speech that way. Imagine having a tummy ache when you can't talk, you know, so what would you do? You would act out, you know, so it could be that there's a subset of kids. Nobody knows yet if it's a larger subset uh, than a non-autistic group, but could be there's a subset of autistic kids who can't handle gluten. And so if you cut gluten out of their diet, they'll feel better. When they feel better, they will not uh, have to act out as much or not act in self-injurious ways. So I'm not like dismissing all this as quackery. The one aspect of Bernie's um, biomedical trip that was quackery was that he eventually claimed that you could cure autism with biomedical interventions. And it's just not true. Bernie would host these meetings, and there were meetings of, you know, the parents group that he had launched. And kids who were allegedly cured from autism by these biomedical interventions would give speeches. And the problem is, if you look at them, it's obvious that they're still very autistic. It could be that they had... uh, you know, improved in certain areas of function. Um, Kids do that for all sorts of reasons. Uh, One of the things that Bernie recommended was doing everything at once for the child. So a child might be getting ABA, they might be getting occupational therapy, they might be getting dietary interventions, they might be taking vitamins. Um, The problem with that is that you are then running a very uncontrolled experiment on your child. And so if the child improves, you know, was it the vitamin B? Was it the secretin, this pig hormone that Bernie was pushing, you know, as allegedly a cure for autism? Was it, you know, you could get it through the gray market. Uh, Bernie and his, his, the parenting organization practically created like a, like almost like a shadow medical establishment to provide alleged cures for autism to parents who were desperate. You know, the parents would share all this information. Bernie had a newsletter. It was for the most part a very good thing because it gave parents a sense that there was progress going on in autism science. And in fact, their bloody wasn't, except for, you know, a couple of places on earth. Why? Because autism was mistakenly believed to be so rare. I actually read a paper by a um, psychiatrist, I think, in the 1970s that said something like, you know, it basically apologized to the reader up front, like, I'm sorry to, you know, sort of be wasting your time with this incredible niche condition. You'll never see it, you know, in your practice. But but here it is because it's kind of interesting, you know. So that's how rare autism was, that researchers would apologize, you know, for even writing papers about it. And so there was, like, very little progress being made. Plus, because the prevailing theories, you know, up to that point had been mostly, you know, these this crap, you know, Freudian stuff about bad mothering. Um, There was just no progress happening. But Bernie would, you know, diligently collect all the information that he could about anything that might help autistic kids and put it in the newsletter. It was like a, almost like a proto internet, really. Um, And so parents had a sense that, you know, there was important work being done and that breakthroughs might be around the corner and, you know, all that. 
And so, um, but eventually Bernie got so obsessed with the vitamins. He was really into, uh, B vitamins in particular, magnesium. Like he got so obsessed with his particular, um, alleged cures that were never tested against placebo. Like that he didn't believe in placebo controlled trials. Um, he thought he had found better ways of, uh, of, uh, running experiments, basically. So it was very hard for Bernie to separate out what was the natural course of development from what his, you know, special remedies were doing. And so, um, eventually some of the parents, including a guy who I just had dinner with actually a couple of weeks ago named Ed Ritvo, who was a real, uh, pioneer of biological autism research, not psychological, but biological looking for biomarkers for autism. Ed was one of the first scientists in the world who did that. And he split with Bernie in the parents' organization over the issue of vitamins. Because Bernie was saying, you know, from now on, anyone who wants to join our our organization, we have to get a vow from them that they're giving their kids these vitamins, you know. And Ritfo was like, no, you know, we're, we're not, the science is not, is not solid on that. And we're not that kind of organization. We're here to offer support. And so that was another big rift. So, um, well, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned yeah. the, the, the cure over and over, a cure or, or treatment. And that's actually another rift that occurred is should these parents groups be pursuing a cure for autism or should they be sort of more aiming themselves towards creating supports that would help people with autism to lead better lives? Right. And that was really present at the very first meeting, as I mentioned in the, uh, distinction between ABA and the uh, computer learning system because <clears throat> Lovas would eventually claim uh, that his uh, intensive ABA, and by intensive I mean like really intensive, um, in fact I believe his phrase was all significant persons in all significant environments basically had to be involved in training the child um, using behaviorist techniques. So basically, the child was fully immersed among people who were constantly trying to train them to do the right thing. It was a very artificial situation. Who could afford that, you know, kind of, you know. It's, <clears throat> so, um, but Lovas disastrously uh, in the late 80s would eventually claim that he could uh, restore the kids to no- quote-unquote normal functioning. And that was an exaggeration. People who've worked with him said that, you know, it, it wasn't good science, uh, but it sure landed him on the, you know, in the New York Times. So uh, Lovas basically, even though he didn't, he sort of avoided the word cure. He used the word recovery, recovery mm-hmm. from autism. And so <clears throat> a good glimpse of what recovery means is think about this. You know who Temple Grandin is, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's like the most uh, widely known autistic person on earth, probably, at this point. And she's a brilliant industrial designer. When she came out with her autobiography in the late 80s, Bernie wrote the foreword, and he called her a recovered autistic person. So he implied that, she, that she'd been cured. Why did he say that? Because an autistic person under... You know, Bernie's criteria uh, would not be capable of working at a university or having a degree or living independently. So obviously she was recovered. Right. You know, but now it's like, you know, Temple Grandin is, is not, you know, neither the most nor the least autistic person I've ever met. 
you know, she, she has autism. It's pretty unmistakable. Um, but, you know, to Bernie at that moment in history, she seemed to be recovered simply because she was an adult leading her own life. Uh, it's a, you know, one of the things when I was talking to Ritvo, he pointed out that, um, something that actually really took me aback, which is that he published a paper in 1989. That's not that long ago, people. You know, he published a paper in 1989 about autistic adults who were married and have, and had kids. And it actually, uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't the most flattering paper. Like hardly any of them had been able to keep jobs and they, they had a lot of problems. Even so, he, Ritvo told, Ed Ritvo told me that his, his colleagues said that he was crazy for saying that autistic people could get married and have kids and, and even be adults. Like the existence of autistic adults was still a kind of uh, controversial, you know, thing. Um, and so that's how recently and how radically things have changed our picture of autism from even 1989. This is Science for the People, and I'm joined today by Steve Silberman, author of Neurotribes. And we'll be back with more after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and today we've brought author Steve Silberman back to talk a bit more about his book, Neurotribes. So I'm just wondering, where, where does this stand now? Where is the priority for parents' groups? Are, is, is anybody still focused on finding a cure, or is it about making life more comfortable, or, or what's the goal? Well, boy, is that ever a hot-button issue. Um, you know, I've been talking a lot, uh, since the publication of my book about the need to build more support systems for families and more, uh, resources for autistic people as they become adults, better, uh, job training programs, transitional programs to help them, uh, once they leave high school and have to move into the job market, mentorship programs, because one of the things that seems to really work for young autistic adults is to talk to older autistic adults and get tips from them on living. And that's something that only became possible in the, in the recent historical era because autistic, you know, the very existence of autistic adults was denied, uh, you know, until the last couple of decades. So um, basically there is still now a very hot button controversy about whether or not most of the research should be focused on uh, finding the cause of autism and then maybe finding a cure for autism. I think, you know, finding a cure for autism, I have to say, I, I think it's a, it's a uh, quixotic mission. Um, autism affects so many different uh, systems in the body, perceptual systems. Uh, it is really very deeply a part of a person's identity. So, you know, when I was a kid um, in high school, I came out as gay to my parents. And, you know, they immediately, as most parents back then would have done, 
sent me to a therapist for the cure, you know, and um, <clears throat> let's say it didn't work. <laughs> you know, I'm now a happily married gay man, you know, uh, and I, I remember it actually went pretty well because I was talking to the therapist for a while. Uh, and I said, how much is this costing my parents? You know, and she told me it was some unbelievable amount. And I said, D do you think I really need this? You know, and she was like, you seem perfectly happy and well adjusted to me. <laughs> so she was actually pioneer herself, but because homosexuality, it was still then listed as a mental illness, you know? So anyway, now obviously it's not a completely parallel situation. Because autism can present much more, you know, basically with a gay person, if you, you know, if you stop beating them up and firing them and allow them to get married, they can be pretty happy. Right. So it's not an exact parallel, but for autistic people, uh, you know, if they can have the support that they need, uh, they, they can lead happy autistic lives. I, you know, people say, well, what about a cure? Like, we're not even close, you know? And so what I've been saying since my book was published was that we should be devoting as much research to how to improve the lives of the autistic people already here as we are to investigating why they became autistic. And that's exactly what's not happening. Uh, for instance, a government report came out last year that showed that uh, the total outlay on research in America on improving the lives of autistic adults, it was, it was scandalously low. It was like 1% or something and falling. It had been falling. And part of the reason why there's so, has been so little um, research into the lives of autistic adults is because of the idea that vaccines cause autism. And that created such a, um, panic that, uh, it, it did focus a lot of energy onto, uh, the causes of autism and it did produce, you know, some good research that had nothing to do with vaccines because, uh, vaccines do not, in fact, cause autism. But the problem is that it put us in a mindset where, you know, society feels like it's only taking autism seriously if it researches the cause. Right. And there are probably multiple causes. Uh, and I would submit that society is not taking autism seriously until it supports autistic people and their families. And we're nowhere close to that. Okay. Now that brings me to something else I really want to talk about is, uh, you know, we've, we've been primarily talking about kids, but can you talk a bit about adult self advocacy around autism? Because I think that was another turning point. Sure. Absolutely. Well, remember that the concept of an autistic self advocate is a relatively recent historical development because as I mentioned, when, you know, Temple Grandin came out with her biography, Emergence, um, she was, you know, presented as a recovered autistic person. So the notion that someone might be adult, autistic, you know, not recovered and okay, that's a very, very new idea. Um, and uh, so basically what made that possible was the emergence of the Internet, because the Internet turns out to be a very comfortable communication environment for people who have trouble parsing subtle signs in body language, making sense of facial expressions, responding to subtle social cues. You know, when you're sitting behind your computer, you can take the time to compose your thoughts, even if you're unable to use oral speech. You know, you can, you can, um, compose your thoughts on your own time and interact with other people. 
And I did some research into the very first autistic communities online. And what was so interesting to me was looking at only the oldest people in your audience will remember this. But there used to be an area of the Internet called Usenet, uh, which was Internet news groups. And um, so it was like uh, places where people could talk about stuff that they were interested in, like the Grateful Dead or, you know, or Doctor Who or whatever. So these communities of shared interests would spring up on something called Usenet. And in one of the first uh, places that was built for, I believe it was the parents of, of disabled children, um, autistic people started appearing there and they would ask each other, can, can I was diagnosed with Connor syndrome, i.e. autism, when I was a child. Can Connor syndrome perf persist into adulthood? So they literally had to discover that they were still autistic by talking to each other and saying, yes, I, I think I still have Connor syndrome too. <laughs> you know, like it, it's amazing to me that that recently, you know, people still had to sort of grope around in the dark and, and find out that they were still autistic and that there were other people like them and that they sh shared many of the same challenges in daily life. So <clears throat> once autistic people could start talking to each other, um, they started sharing the stories of their lives and they found very quickly that there were many commonalities, that they struggled with many of the same things, as diverse as the autism community is. You know, there were, there were some themes that were very persistent. Um, the other thing that happened was that a guy named Jim Sinclair, who had never been what you would call normal, um, he was, he was born, uh, with the sexual characteristics of neither gender. And his, uh, parents raised him as a little girl, but he felt like a boy. And so his first act of rebellion was to jump off his father's lap when his father would call him a little girl. Anyway, he ended up <clears throat> figuring out that he was an adult autistic. He went down to UCLA and picked up the pamphlets and saw that they didn't really, you know, describe his life accurately because they described people with no empathy and, you know, all the, the usual terrible, you know, clinical cliches about autism. So Jim Sinclair started having meetings of autistic people at adult, at, at basically at conferences where autism was being discussed. And what they would do is they would stand up and say, well, actually, I'm autistic and it's not like that. Or, well, actually, I'm autistic and this is, you know, this is what it's like for me. So they started challenging the um, widely accepted stereotypes of autism by presenting themselves in their actual full humanity. And eventually what Jim and the other members of what was called the Autism Network International um, what they figured out was that crowded conferences, uh, were not the best place for them to meet because the, you know, those conferences were like uh, socially taxing even for non-autistic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I can feel pretty autistic at conferences sometimes, even though I'm not. But, um, what they did was they started having a series of events that were called Autreat, Autistic Retreat. And they were customized, the sensory environment of Autry was customized for autistic people. So no flash, you know, they would ask people not to put on perfume because autistic people can have hyperacute senses. Um, I went to Autry. It was one of the first things that I did uh, for my book research. And it was absolutely one of the most crucial steps in my research because I got to hang out with 70 autistic people at all levels of ability. Like there's this 
huge, uh, you know, sort of um, temptation among parents, particularly, unfortunately, to dismiss autistic adults who advocate for themselves as, quote unquote, high functioning people who are not like my child. Well, the truth of the matter is, <clears throat> when many autistic self-advocates were young, they were like that child. In fact, Temple Grandin was like their child. Temple Grandin would, you know, throw her poop and uh, injure herself and do all the things that were, you know, she got kicked out of many, many schools. So there's this belief that I believe is a myth that there are like two kinds of autism. There's the low functioning autism. That's the real autism, you know, and then there's the high functioning autism that, you know, it's not really autism. And it's, it's just not true. There, there are in fact hundreds of kind, thousands of kinds of autism. There are as many kinds of autism as there are autistic people and people's sort of position on you know, the functioning ladder, you can say, can change not only from year to year or from stage of life to stage of life, but from day to day. Um, as as uh, my favorite way of putting that is, uh, there's a woman in my book named Carol Greenberg, who is the autistic mother of an autistic child. And she said, some days are more autistic than others. <laughs> and uh, what she means is that the challenges that she faces and that her son faces can change from day to day. So um, <clears throat> autistic self-advocates are now, it's actually, we're sitting in the, you know, I hate to overuse this word because particularly because I used to write for Wired, the word revolution, you know, it sort of became a cliche. We are in a revolution. And what is happening is that autistic self-advocates have now demanded a place at the table when the uh, public policy that affects autistic people is set. And a very clear example of that is Hillary Clinton's autism plan. Now, I'm not going to get partisan here. I'm not going to tell anyone who to vote for. I'm just saying that um, Hillary Clinton's 2008 uh, speech about autism was all focused on causes and I don't know if she used the word cure, but it was, you know, it was implicit in what she was saying. Her new plan is all about supporting autistic people and their families. And she didn't say anything about epidemic or cause or cure. It was, it was about um, helping autistic people and their families get the support and services they need. Why? It's because somebody on her team listened to us autistic self-advocates and group like the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, which ASAN, which is the most prominent, uh, I would say, autistic self-advocacy group in America. And <clears throat> they are really changing the conversation about autism in, in very positive ways. Well, and actually, this is a good point for me to ask. So what can, I guess, neurotypicals, and I love that term, neurotypical, yeah. meaning it's persons who aren't on the spectrum. Uh, right. And, and keep in mind, you know, like some people say, well, isn't that a slur? You know, isn't that a slur against non-autism? No, it's hilarious. I think it's it, wonderful. Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. So, so what can neurotypicals do to help facilitate a better life experience for the neurodiverse? Well, um, in the workplace, you can, for one thing, you can widen your concept of what a good employee is. In many cases, even in technology, um, people say, well, what are we looking for? We're looking for good people people. Well, you know, 
autistic people tend not to be good people people. You know, they might be uh, able to focus very, very intensely on uh, a task for hours on end, uh, which most neurotypical people can't do because they'd be gossiping at the water fountain or whatever. Um, make room for different kinds of skills and different ways of thinking and also different ways of experiencing the world. For instance, there's been a trend in recent years towards open offices where, you know, you just have these cubicles and everybody has their, you know, little action figures in their cubicles. And, but it's basically a big room with lots of noise and, you know, everybody walking around. That's not so good, you know, for an autistic person. An autistic person might be better off in a closed office. Um, many autistic, you know, it's a matter of customizing the environment in <clears throat> subtle ways so that people who experience the world differently can be comfortable. For instance, many autistic people are bothered by fluorescent lights. They hear them buzz. Like even if a neurotypical person can't hear it, they hear it. So if they need an overhead light, you know, perhaps you can investigate having diff different areas of lighting in the office. Um, there are many ways that we can customize our environment for um, people who experience the world differently and think differently. And what I find is that when you when you change the world so that it's better for disabled people, you often end up creating a better world for everyone. A really good example of that is curb cuts. You know, that was originally invented for wheelchair users. What parent pushing a stroller isn't grateful that there's a curb cut at the corner, you know, so they don't have to jostle the stroller? I and personally would like to, to thank autism advocates for creating quiet rooms at conferences. I value those highly. Thank you. Yes, exactly. And people now at the gym can read the news from their treadmill on the TV screen because of an accommodation made for people who are deaf, you know, and nobody thought like, well, maybe someday there'll be gyms where people want to read about Donald Trump's latest outrage while they're on the treadmill, you know, <laughs> but it ends up, you know, when you make the world better for people who are different than you, you end up making the world better for even you. What I would say is that the future of uh, certainly one area of autism research is to investigate ways is to adapt um, curricula in schools because now that we have digital uh, tablet devices, we can present the same core curriculum in different ways that are suited to the individual learning styles of each student. So if one student is, you know, a better text-based learner, then they can read. If another student is a better audio-based learner, then they can listen to the lesson. And we now, because of the advent of digital technology, really, uh, have made it possible to customize many aspects of our daily experience in ways that are better suited to people who think differently. One of the points at which I had to really wonder about um, the anti-vaccine people is that I read on a very famous blog that I will not mention, uh, but it's one of the most prominent anti-vaccine blogs. And the, the editor was writing about that she had heard that the local library had was launching a quiet room for autistic kids so that they could go there and chill out and, you know, not have to deal with a lot of noise while they were reading at the library. She was outraged by this. Why? Because it normalizes autism. She thinks we should be instead working on the cure, you know, only, you know, no quiet rooms for autistic kids because then, you know, you'll think autism is okay. I'll tell you, I don't, you know, I just can't wrap my mind around that really.
It's like we have to start taking care of the people who are, who are here already. Steve, you are lovely, and we never get to all the questions that I Oh, have. sorry. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming back. And everyone, everyone, go buy the book. Go buy the book. And that was Steve Silberman, author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. We've linked to it on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. That's it for us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.